Okay, the ordinance of covenanting. We're up to week 39. This will be this part two of the Solemn League and Covenant. Uh, fourth term of communion, that public social covenanting is an ordinance of God, obligatory on churches and nations under the New Testament, that the, new, that, that the National Covenant and the Solemn League are an exemplification of this divine institution, and that these deeds are of continued obligation upon the moral person. Fourth term of communion. So, the, um, the Solemn League, we, we talked about the introductory matter, uh, the preface to it last time. There are six articles, and we're going to begin tonight with the first article, and I'll, I'll read through it in a minute. Um, with each article, we can see some of the concerns of the Covenanters, uh, what they're concerned to accomplish both in church and in state, and their goal in all of this, their goal is to bring about a, a certain uniformity <clears throat> between Scotland, England, and Ireland in particular, and um, actually, historically, uh, later on, they send this national, or the Solemn League and Covenant, they send to the, um, the Dutch, and so we can see from that the intention here is broader than the National Covenant. The Solemn League and Covenant is intended to be an international covenant and alliance or pact. And so, although England, Scotland, and Ireland are in the first consideration, very clearly, uh, particularly as they um, adopt the standards, the Westminster Standards, um, that becomes the basis for an appeal for uh, an international Calvinist or Reformed alliance against international popery. <clears throat> they want to approach it from a nationalist point of view, but they want the nations to be joined by a common religion. And that religion uh, throughout the Solemn League and Covenant, the presumption is that the Scots, Scotland has a much better grasp of what it means to be reformed in doctrine, worship, government, and discipline. They also have an assumption that there's something that can be learned from some of the continental reformed churches, uh, which we will, uh, we, we will see as we read uh, in this first article. 
right? What they do not uh, understand to be the case is this. They do not understand that England or Ireland, although they are Protestant, that they are really thoroughly reformed. Right? They're reformed... Um, Doctrinally, they are generally reformed. The 39 articles of the Anglican Church. But when it comes to matters of worship, government, and discipline, there is certainly a lot to be desired there. And there's even some doctrinal matters that could be cleared up a bit. <clears throat> so the doctrinal um, and, and even matters of worship, government, and discipline, those matters, when they talk about the uniformity here, they're talking about, and it, it to some extent starts out to be, an attempt, Westminster is an attempt at the beginning, in some respects, to revise the 39 articles. And very quickly it moves from that to, why don't we just do this all over again? It'll be easier. We have many more examples now that we can use, and the end result will be, the churches in England and Ireland will be much more in keeping with other Reformed churches on the continent and especially with the Reformed Church in Scotland. Even though the Anglican Church is Protestant, <coughs> when it comes to its liturgies, uh, they are semi-popish. When it comes to its government, that prelatical government is not really reflective of uh, the idea of church government, not only in Scotland, but uh, among the Dutch or the German Reformed or the Swiss Reformed. Uh, they just don't have a thoroughgoing Reformation. And the Puritans, in not only in Parliament, but in the, the English churches, they're interested in that. And, and those are the very people who end up uh, largely forming the body of, of uh, theologians that assemble at Westminster as a result of this solemn league and covenant. So let me read the first article. <clears throat> that we shall sincerely, really, and constantly, through the grace of God, endeavor in our several places and callings, the preservation of the Reformed religion in the Church of Scotland, in doctrine, worship, discipline, and government, against our common enemies, the reformation of religion in the kingdoms of England and Ireland, in doctrine, worship, discipline, and government, according to the word of God, 
and the example of the best Reformed churches, and shall endeavor to bring the churches of God in the three kingdoms to the nearest conjunction and uniformity in religion, confession of faith, form of church government, directory for worship, and catechizing. That we and our posterity after us may as brethren live in faith and love, and the Lord may delight to dwell in the midst of us. <coughs> so, again, it's notable that they want to preserve the, um, the doctrine, worship, government, discipline of the Church of Scotland. They want to reform the doctrine, government, worship, and discipline of, of the churches in England and Ireland. And they want to do it according to the word of God and the examples of the best reformed churches. Now, <clears throat> the nearest church to the English and Irish is clearly the Church of Scotland. And they are going to have the greatest input, direct input, into this endeavoring. The Church of Scotland will send... Uh, several commissioners and ruling elders to be advisors. So Alexander Henderson, uh, George Gillespie, uh, Robert Bailey, and Samuel Rutherford, together with a couple of uh, ruling elders, they all end up as Scottish commissioners. And they're involved in the debates that will go on in the process of sorting out what we now call the Westminster Confession of Faith, uh, the Presbyterian form of government, the Directory for Public Worship, and the, our larger and shorter catechisms. They're going to be very much involved in that. <clears throat> Along with them, uh, this Solemn League and Covenant leads to calling hundreds of Puritans, uh, mostly Presbyterian, a few independents, but um, in the end, when they talk about the nearest conjunction in government, uh, the fact is that the Reformed churches on the continent, like the Church of Scotland, they were Presbyterian. So the form of government eventually is Presbyterian. <clears throat> this presbyterial government <clears throat> and the nature of that government um, becomes a point of contention later. But what we can see is the intention here is to bring about not only a thoroughgoing reform, but to establish presbyterian government. In England and Ireland. <clears throat> now I, I call attention to that because later on uh, the independents are going to complain about this and they're going to say, well, you know, um, we didn't really get what we wanted in matter of government and we, we didn't know that the end of this was to establish Presbyterian government and Samuel Rutherford is going to tell them uh, 
in no uncertain terms, uh, that's duplicitous on your part, right? You're not being honest. Um, it's already there in the Solemn League and Covenant. And I'm, I'm pointing out to you that, in fact, he's right about that. Any thinking person should have recognized uh, that all of the churches from which they're going to get their example were presbyterial. Now, there are various forms of Presbyterianism. <clears throat> there are, um, in the Reformed churches on the continent, there are different some different emphases as you go from church to church, national church or provincial church uh, to church. Some of the differences have to do with the fact that um, they, the continental churches were either not established as a national church, like the Church of Scotland, or they were more limited in scope, like the Church of Geneva. They didn't really have, uh, they, they weren't um, concerned with governing an entire nation, but more like a city-state, you know, several congregations in a city-state. Um, so, there, there are arguments to be had within that context, and they are, in fact, had. Uh, there's a grand debate that occurs during the Westminster Assembly between the Independents and the Presbyterians. So it's not as though the Independents did not have an opportunity to explain why they rejected the Presbyterian connection of these congregations. They did. They, they also had a chance to explain why they rejected the authority of superior or, or ascending church courts over lower courts, why higher courts should not be viewed as anything, uh, but in the, in, in the independent scheme of things, higher courts are, are just simply advisory. In Presbyterianism, Higher courts have the power to bind lower courts, and that is reflected in most national judicial systems. So, um, just keep that in mind as we go. Uh, the independents should have known where this was going. <coughs> and there's a bit of dishonesty, I think. Uh, on their part. I think Rutherford is right to call them out and say that that's not really being quite honest. So, we're going to talk about and break down a number of propositions here in the first article. And uh, we're going to discuss these things from a biblical point of view. I, I really want to establish that there's nothing going on in the Solemn League and Covenant that is unbiblical. They're not asking us to uh, think about things in a, in a way contrary to the Bible. We're not being led away from Scripture, but we're being led to a closer consideration of Scripture and its implications beyond, in many respects, beyond the local congregation. So, let's look 
A question one. Is it a chief article of our faith that we should that we seek to preserve the Reformed religion of the Church of Scotland? And the answer is yes. We're going to begin looking at 3 John 11. <clears throat> when they begin calling our attention to the faith of the Church of Scotland, the Reformed religion as professed by the Church of Scotland, we are put in a position where we have to consider uh, this question. Is that faith, the Reformed religion, as professed and practiced in Scotland, is that true or not? And if it is, then it has a power, um, just abstractly, it has a power that is certainly directive, corrective, instructive, and, being the truth, binding. Right? Before we even get to the question of including it here in the covenant. <clears throat> and so if you're the Church of England and you're the Church of Ireland, and you are now brought into a room with the Church of Scotland to discuss differences. Right? Your obligation here is not to lead them away, but rather, first of all, to preserve what they have. And as we're going to see, that will necessitate your own reform and drawing into yourself into closer alignment with that. Right, so this we should endeavor because one of one number one in doctrine, uh, the Reformed religion is as professed in the Church of Scotland is all of it Orthodox. Second Timothy three sixteen. Yeah, there. There was in Scotland, um, among the English-speaking people, there was uh, a um, uh, a concern for a thoroughgoing reformation. <clears throat> there was a concern that the reformation would be would be um, handled in a way that would be um, thorough from, from top to bottom, right? That there would be a, a, a concern to make sure that every doctrinal I is dotted, every T is crossed, that there is um, a... a uh, a full account given in the church of reformed doctrine, right? The, the purpose of the Reformation was to purge out all of the popish elements, uh, to remove all of that dross. And the fact is, the Church of Scotland 
does this better and more thoroughly than any other English-speaking church. And frankly, um, I would assert that they uh, did it better than any of the other Reformed churches, period, uh, for a number of reasons. They had a number of situations in Scotland that forced certain questions upon them in a very pointed manner and forced them to make a, a much more precise defense. I mean, precisely because of the liturgies and the prelacy and the, uh, the uh, semi-popish um, things that were going on south of their border in England, they had to give closer consideration. So again, in doctrine, it's all orthodox, and Scripture commands us to study to maintain sound doctrine. Look at Titus one nine. Titus one verse nine: the faith of the word as he had been taught, that he may be able by sound doctrine to exhort and to advance the gainsayers. Yeah, there is a command to maintain sound doctrine. So if if the uh, doctrine of the Church of Scotland is sound, <coughs> and um, if you're not convinced of that, uh, that's a different question. Uh, for the moment, we're, we're assuming that. Uh, people who need more proof of that probably should listen to uh, the lectures on the Confession of Faith, uh, which is really an exposition of uh, the standards that were set by Westminster, but they're clearly reflective of the doctrine of the Church of Scotland. Anyway, there's a command to maintain sound doctrine, and that uh, that falls on all who would profess to be Christians. You don't have a right to be in error, you don't have a right to heresy. You don't have a right to deviate from the truth. Um, there's none of that granted in the Bible. Right? We have an obligation to study, to understand the truth, and to adhere to it uh, to the highest degree we can. We know that there's a faith contrary to sound doctrine, which actually distorts and warps practice. Look at 1 Timothy 1.10. 1 Timothy 1.10. When the apostle is listing um, bad practice, he, uh, quite frankly, lays bad practice at the feet of Bad doctrine. Right? That which is contrary to sound doctrine. <coughs> so, you know, there are two ways to know if, if doctrine is sound. One is generally we need to look at the fruit of it. Uh, historically, did it make people generally better Christians? 
right? And the second is to then apply that in your own life. You know, if it's not making you better, if it's not drawing you closer, but it did with all these other people, uh, it drew them into closer conformity to what the Bible is teaching, then the problem is not them, it's in you. Right? The problem is not the doctrine, but the way you're holding that doctrine. So it's possible to hold sound doctrine in an unsound manner. But it's also true that corrupt doctrine, uh, doctrine contrary to sound doctrine, uh, has a corrupting influence uh, in pra in your practice. <clears throat> However, there are explicit commands that we hold to true apostolic doctrine, lest uh, we bring divisions to the church through corrupt practice. Look at Romans 16, 17. Romans 16, 17, I beseech you, brethren, mark them which cause divisions and offenses contrary to the doctrine which ye have learned, and avoid them. If to mark and avoid those who cause divisions contrary to the doctrine that you've heard. And so, again, the doctrine should not be causing divisions. It should be producing a kind of unity. Now, there are going to be some people who probably listen and say, well, uh, that's funny to hear you say something like that. Um, after all, there are so few of you, uh, people who believe this. <clears throat> uh, but the answer to that is actually that their tenuous holding of this doctrine has allowed for all these fissures, right? They've actually abandoned things, and by abandoning some part of the truth, as we're going to see, they've made it necessary uh, to step aside and have nothing to do with them. Right? They they are the ones who've caused the breach, and the breach is caused by their refusal to hold to reformational attainments. Remember, our first article in the covenant here has to do with seeking to preserve the true reformed religion, particularly as we see it expressed in the Church of Scotland. Right? If they had done that, if they would do that, there would be no necessary no necessity uh, to to stand away from them. Right? They are the ones who've caused the breach, as uh, when the, when the um, the protester resolutioner. Debate erupts in the 1650s, early 1650s. There's a, a, a protester work <coughs> which points out that <coughs> the um, the house that falls, you don't blame the wall that stands for the house falling. You blame it on the weak wall. That's what caused a breach in the house. All right, so standing to the truth can never be a good rationale for saying that, you know, we've caused a breach. When we hold 
to what the standards of the church are, and they refuse to do that, they have made the breach. Anyway, there's this other issue, <clears throat> and that is that unsound doctrine leads to corrupt practice. And you see, that's exactly the problem here, right? The reason why there's a breach, the reason why they've opened that door, why their wall has fallen and taken down the house, as it were, is because they've adopted something contrary to sound doctrine. At the very least, they've adopted the view that we can have people of various opinions in what ought to be settled matters in the same communion. And that cannot be true. If the church isn't asking us to agree at every single possible point, but it is asking us to agree, and the preservation of true Reformed religion requires us to agree in those points which have been uh, contested and as a result of that have in fact been determined and settled in the church. All right, we have to endeavor not only because of doctrine, but number two, uh, we should endeavor to preserve the Reformed Religion Church of Scotland because in worship, it is pure and unmixed. Look at Philippians 3.3. 3. <clears throat> yeah, we are the circumcision which worship God in the Spirit. Uh, there is this idea that uh, the worship of the Church of Scotland is uh, is established in a manner that preserves its purity. Uh, the Church of Scotland does not allow into its worship all of those corruptions of Romanism. They don't allow all of the um, the Judaizing that is associated with Romish uh, worship. You know, sacrifices of the mass and incense and and stations of the cross and uh, all of all of those elaborate uh, ornamental aspects. Uh, no, the worship of the Church of Scotland is pure and unmixed. Uh, the fact is, Scripture commands us to worship God in the way He has appointed and none else. Deuteronomy twelve thirty two, Matthew fifteen nine. And Colossians 223. <laughs> <clears throat> this is called the regulative principle. Um, in the Westminster Confession, it, this principle, which was observed in the Church of Scotland and promoted by the Puritan and Reformed people, not only in England, but throughout the continent, um, these views are going to be expressed uh, within the Westminster Confession, uh, 
in the chapter on worship uh, that the acceptable way of worshiping God is that which is appointed in his word, right? And, and nothing else. God does not accept of anything else. It's a hard thing. You know, people think that, well, God should accept whatever I do. Uh, that is a very human-centered opinion. God has <clears throat> a right, and he has exercised that right to appoint how we ought to worship him. And the Church of Scotland understood this almost instinctively from the very beginning. Right? They were uh, under Knox. They were, were very quickly moved to purge out all kinds of things that were allowed to fester in the English church. And the English church because of this, uh, really becomes fractious. I mean, there's a reason why, as we approach the 1640s, there's a need for this Westminster Assembly. You've got several factions in the English church, and they're there uh, precisely because the... the um, doctrines in the church are giving an uncertain sound on a number of points. Right, All worship offered contrary to the divine command is idolatry. Look at Exodus 30 verse 9 and Leviticus 10.1. Exodus 30 verse 9 shall offer no strange incense thereon, nor burn sacrifice, nor meat offering, neither shall eat or drink offering thereon. Yeah, it's strange fire precisely because God had not commanded it. Right? That makes it idolatrous. Makes it something unacceptable to God. It makes it idolatrous worship. It's will worship. Substituting what you would, you know, you say to yourself, well, this seems like God should like this. You know, it seems like God should like that. What what could possibly be the problem? Well, the problem begins with this fact. <clears throat> Your mind cannot comprehend what God wants and is seeking in the worship of his people. So he tells us what to say in the Psalms. We just don't and won't get it. From this idolatrous worship, all Christians are commanded to flee. Look at First John five twenty one. First John five verse twenty one. Children, keep yourselves from idols. <clears throat> We're to flee idolatry. We're to keep ourselves 
<clears throat> from that idolatrous thing. We're to walk circumspectly, uh, avoiding the unclean thing. You know, people say, why is it that Puritan worship is so sparse compared to uh, the worship that you find in, going on in so many other congregations? And the reason is Puritan worship is, in fact, only comprised of that which we can be sure God has appointed. Because everything else is idolatry. No matter how well-intentioned you might think it is. Again, remember, what you think and all of your good intentions are expressions of your own will. And when your own will dares to rise up to tell God what should be acceptable in his worship, it's will worship. It's idolatrous, and we need to flee from it. We, we shouldn't be present in it. Don't want anything to do with it. <clears throat> you know, you wouldn't be present or you shouldn't be present in a voodoo ceremony. And if you understand that that is just sort of a, a more obvious form of idolatry, you know, just because people continue to say the name of Jesus and uh, talk about perhaps the Holy Trinity, <clears throat> just because they, they um, uh, seem to be very orderly and, and decorous in their uh, demeanor, that does not mean it's not idolatry. Right? Idolatry is not defined by your perception or my perception. It's defined by any deviation from the appointment of God's word. Again, there's a reason why the uh, Reformed Reformation was so uh, circumspect in, in, in um, reconsidering and in re-evaluating the matter of worship. Mm -hmm. This is something which uh, I think slipped through on the Lutheran side of the Reformation. You know, the Lutherans were concerned about uh, justification by faith alone, but as, um, as uh, Calvin, I think, rightly points out, the worship of God is even more important than sound doctrine. Sound worship is more important. The reason is, you know, sound doctrine is important for you or for me, Sound worship is what we're offering to God. And our chief end is to glorify God. It, it, that's a hard thing for us to get our minds around. Right? People very often say, well, the doctrine here is sound. Um, actually, it's not. Remember what we just said. If the, if the practice is corrupt, then there's something wrong with the way they're either the doctrine that they hold or the way they're holding that doctrine. 
So worship is actually, uh, in a sense, the canary in the coal mine. When there's something going wrong here, we should understand from that there's something wrong at some sort of more basic level, some foundational level. There's something wrong. And the Bible talks about people who hold the truth in unrighteousness. It's possible that people can believe the truth and yet engage in idolatry. Right? But we're to flee idolatry. Shouldn't say, oh, well, you know, the doctrine is sound. I, I just, I'll skip on the worship. You can't do that. <clears throat> All right. A third reason we should endeavor to preserve the Reformed religion in the Church of Scotland is uh, because in discipline and government, it, it represents a bulwark against our common enemies. Uh, look at 2 Samuel 23.3 and Psalm 110.2. 2 Samuel 23, verse 3. God has said, Israel, to me, the rule of man must be just, ruling in the fear of God. Yes, yeah, so it, this is a uh, government is necessary. Uh, to bind the body together against common enemies. And presbyterial government, which is what we're talking about defending here, is warrantable and no way tyrannical. I just want you to look, for example, Leviticus 25, uh, 46. Over your brethren, you're not to rule with rigor. And that's a principle that Presbyterianism actually seeks to preserve um, in, in the, the realm of the church. There has to be, um, in, in a sense, uh, there has to be a passionate regard for the truth, but a dispassionate regard for persons. Right there, there can't be a respect of persons, and that's a very hard thing to do. <clears throat> you know, humanly speaking, um, and and that's precisely why presbyterial government is uh, in the hands of many. When we talk about the government discipline of church, it's in the hands of many, not in the hands of one. Right? It's possible that you come into a situation where you're going to fall under the government or of the church, right? They're the discipline, I should say, of the church. You're going to come into conflict. <clears throat> it may be real. It may be imagined. If you are in the good favor and grace of a single person, you could skate, right? On the other hand, if you are... Uh, held in contempt by that same person, there might be a rigor that would be unwarranted. By spreading out that government over um, numerous elders, it helps 
present that kind of of um, uh, miscarriage of justice, really, right? An undue rigor. It's always possible that you know two people just they rub each other the wrong way, and they don't quite uh, they don't they don't have that level of, of personal comfort and that could that could color judgment in a matter and that would be wrong presbyterianism is trying to avoid that so that if if you do find yourself in a disciplinary setting disciplinary situation um, the ideal is going to be that you have an opportunity to have that uh, that dispassioned adjudication of your case. Right, the government is upon Christ's shoulders, not to be fixed by him alone. Isaiah 9, 6 and 7, Ephesians 4, 11. So, what we're saying is the Church of Scotland really does have, uh, from from the beginning, uh, they had a much tighter uh, understanding, much sounder um, interpretation of the Bible in all of these matters, doctrine, worship, government, discipline. And as these are all matters important to the um, not just the being, but the well-being of the church, these are all matters which are in fact uh, things that we should strive to preserve and maintain according to our several places and callings. Now that, <clears throat> we're not going to talk about that uh, here. We've talked about this so in a number of different ways. And what they mean by that is uh, to heads of households, uh, that's going to mean one thing. To uh, shop owners, business owners, something else. To um, civil magistrates, something else. And to ministers and elders in the church, something else again. Right? So they, all of them should be studying the same object, but all of them have different powers and relations to exercise toward that object. And the covenant is binding all people in the society to that end. <clears throat> All right, let's move on to question two. Uh, ought we to endeavor the reformation of religion in those nations which are not reformed in doctrine, worship, discipline, and government according to the word of God and the example of the vast reformed churches? And, um, in fact, the answer is yes. 
Uh, frankly, I think this is rooted in the Great Commission. Look at Matthew 28, 19 and 20. Yeah, so in Matthew 28, <clears throat> it says, Go ye therefore, teaching all nations. That word in Greek means to disciple the nations, baptizing them and teaching them. All right, so uh, there, how are we going to do this? Through the exercise of sacraments and catechizing and instruction, right? Ser sermons, discipline, all of that. Uh, why? What are we discipling them unto? Christ, right? the true religion, the true reformed religion. So, if you are like Scotland at this time, the the representatives of Scotland and and um, by not only your own recognition, but by admission of the English representatives, uh, your nation has achieved a much sounder and deeper reformation from popery. Well, shouldn't shouldn't you help those other nations? Shouldn't you be concerned to see them uh, make that full advance in Reformation? And the answer is yes. It's really simply part of the Great Commission that we are to disciple the nations. Right? The Great Commission lays a burden upon the church to seek to disciple the nations. And it's reiterated uh, to uh, the Apostle Paul in Acts 9.15. So Paul, <clears throat> Paul is called to bear God's name to the kings, to the princes of the earth, right, and to the children of Israel. He's being called not only to preach to the Jews, but to the Gentiles, but not just to the Gentiles individually. And, and this is, you know, the um, American Baptist culture has taught people to think about religion almost purely in individualistic terms. Individual Christianity is important, to be sure. But the thrust of Christianity, apostolic Christianity, is to see nations brought into the faith. Right. That's why in, in reform circles, we, we begin with families. We practice infant baptism and so on. And that's why we're looking for and teaching and instructing and praying for national establishments. Um, we want the nations to be discipled. It's the design of the gospel itself to subdue the world of the Gentiles as well as the Jews, to the obedience of the faith of Christ. Matthew 10, 18. Matthew 10, verse 18. 
Yeah, so again, the apostles are told that they're going to be brought before the Gentiles right, to establish them like Israel in this regard. Israel is not simply um, they're they're not simply called as a a bunch of individuals to faith, but the whole nation itself has entered into covenant, and that's what is uh, is meant by this idea of discipling the nations. And so, again, all of this is telling us that, that what the covenanters are talking about here, Scotland stepping up, encouraging, helping, providing aid to the sound parties in England and Ireland to see them reformed. Uh, that's all part of this great commission. It's for this end that the apostle declared himself committed even at the expense of his own life, potentially. Uh, look at 2 Timothy 4, 16 and 17. 16 so Paul is interested right in this very thing that he would be um, used and used up potentially in bringing the gospel to Gentile nations as nations not just to this or that individual but they're looking down the road when they go in they're they're seeking to um, influence men of influence in the government if possible right they want Christianity to permeate these societies they want the nations to covenant. So this this endeavoring is, of course, this is the right thing to do, uh, what they're talking about here. This ought to be effected according to the word of God, uh, Psalm 119. <laughs> And we know that the word alone can cleanse men from iniquity. Ephesians 5.26. Yeah, so we're concerned, right? And, and this is why the Scots are concerned. <clears throat> as as we, we're going to see, as a result of this covenant, uh, they call the Westminster Assembly and the Scots are going to be present. They're concerned. They want them to be reformed according to the word of God. They know that the word of God has power when it is unleashed in the lives, not only of individuals, but of, in the lives of nations. It should also be carried out with a reference to the godly examples of those who have already reformed. Uh, so look, for example, 1 Corinthians 11.1 1 and Song of Solomon 1.8. 1 
So again, one of the points of saying that they're going to reform not only according to the word of God, but the best examples is because very often, right, when we're when we're sitting there and we don't know where to go, we don't know where to begin, uh, it's very helpful to ask those who've gone before us, right, whether uh, we can ask them directly or indirectly, right, they've left an example, they've left footsteps, uh, we, we should try to follow in those footsteps, it's a pretty good indication of the correct way. <clears throat> Thus, the call to reform is at the same time then a call to embrace the faithful doctrine and practice of those who've gone before. Hebrews 6.12 and 13.7. Yeah, we're to follow their faith. We're to... We're to follow in their footsteps. We're to do, uh, we're to embrace and do that which is done, which has been done by the faithful who've gone before us. You know, we may not have noticed this or that teaching in the Bible, but when the church has been called at some point to contend and stand for this or that truth, uh, that is no longer the case, is it? Right? All of a sudden, things that might not have caught our attention are brought to our attention. And so this can be very helpful as we're trying to achieve a thoroughgoing reformation. Right? And I say that, you know, why do we read books, Christians read books by other Christians? You know, they're telling you what they've gone through at some level. They're giving you hints, guidelines, and they're trying to help you so that you might have a better time of it and make more profitable use of your time uh, so that you can become more sound in doctrine and practice. The apostolic doctrine and practice is found in those who are faithful followers of the apostles, is considered the normative standard example for those who would be accounted faithful themselves. Look at Philippians 3.17. Yeah, we have us for an example. Right, a good example. Well, that's, um, that in fact is something which is for us normative. Right? How do we know whether it's a good example or a bad example? We test it by the Word of God. If we test it by the Word of God and determine it's a good example, then there's something instructive in that. There's something in that which is um, going to help us as we try to be like that. Right? We can see what other people have done to maintain that. Right, let's move on to the third question raised from the first article. Ought we to endeavor to bring the churches of God in diverse kingdoms 
into nearest conjunction and uniformity? <clears throat> well, the answer here again is yes. I'm going to begin looking at Zechariah 14.9. Zechariah 14.9. Yeah, the prophecy regarding the New Testament era is that the name of the Lord would be one, right? There'd be one Lord and his name would be one. Now, there, there's going to be one religion and it will be professed uh, together in a manner uniform. Right? There's the idea of uniformity there. And, and the reason for it, we're going to look at here in just a second, but... Um, it, yeah, I think it's important to establish that the truth is not, as some people, and you hear this a lot, it, I get weary of hearing this from people, uh, but this idea that that's true for you. Well, there's this idea that a lot of people have that, you know, that if this or that is true for me, but that's true for you, and so denominations are okay. And that goes on beyond this to the nations, right? Uh, this nation prefers this, and that nation prefers that. I had someone one time tell me that he thought the English nation, as opposed to Scotland, uh, that the English preferred liturgical worship. Well, I don't know if that's the case or not, but even if it were the case... <clears throat> As we've already seen, our preference is not the guide for how we worship God. And so, it may be true that different nations have different priorities. Different nations have different ideas about this or that uh, in matters of religion. But in, in these fundamental matters that we're going to be talking about, confession of faith, uh, form of government, directors for worship, catechizing. Those kinds of things are not, uh, they're not really liable to that kind of diversity because the truth ultimately is one. And although, you know, the um, uh, English-speaking world will be professing and confessing this truth in English, uh, we are, after all, Protestants, and we're not all going to be speaking Latin. <clears throat> we allow that, right? Other nations are going to be speaking in Portuguese, in Spanish, in uh, uh, Tagalog, you know, German, Swahili, right? It doesn't really matter. Uh, the language is not the issue. The formality of the language is not the issue. The issue is that underlying uniformity, right? That there is um, a substantial conjunction and unity because the truth is one, right? The truth isn't one thing here in North America and something else in Africa or in South America or in Asia. It doesn't work that way. So we ought to seek this uniformity, number one, in religion. 
For in the New Testament church, it was prophesied that the Lord would give not only one heart, but one way. Look at Jeremiah 32:39. And the fact is, this way and no other is the way of salvation, and only those who have faith in Christ shall go in this way. Look at Isaiah 35, 8. In, in just think about what Jesus himself says, right? I am the way, the truth, the life. There's only one way. There's only one truth. There's only one life. It's hard for, I think, for modern people uh, to, to wrap their minds around that because everything in our society is telling you there is no objective truth. There is no certainty about um, the, these kinds of, of um, uh, matters, right? There's, there's a, a truth and a morality for you. And um, consequently, uh, you know, we want the government to stay out of all of these affairs, not, not because they fear the government... Um, necessarily doing something wrong because we we see that they many of these people are actually in favor of big government okay their concern is that there might be some infringement upon your personal moral standard and so we get these politicians who say you know I don't Personally, I'm against abortion, but if you aren't, then, you know, we should allow you to do it. And personally, I wouldn't, uh, you know, I, I wouldn't murder my kid, but if you don't have that problem. That's really what it comes down to, but they don't quite frame it that way, right? Um, the fact is, this kind of thinking only arises when you have... Uh, on the one hand, this idea of a boundless toleration, and I think on the other, uh, a, a sense that uh, truth is, if it is objective, uh, it's not really knowable. <clears throat> but there probably isn't any objective truth. And so that from that, everything is cast into uncertainty. And yet, again, the Bible tells us that at some point under the New Testament era uh, that there will be one heart among all of the people of God around the world and that there will be one way. There's going to be a uniformity, a conjunction and uniformity. So what these guys are doing at this time is they are trying to achieve this nearest conjunction and uniformity. They want to get to that. <clears throat> All right. We should seek uniformity, number two, in 
profession of faith. For we're exhorted to walk by the same rule, so far as we've attained, to study uniformity, not diversity in things that are agreed upon to be good and right. Look at uh, Philippians 3.16. Yeah, and the fact is there are only two paths of profession, right? There's one profession which is drawing nigh to God and the other which is departing into unbelief. That's it. Look at Hebrews 10, 38 and 39. Hebrews 10, verses 38 and 39. Yeah, there are only uh, two paths. Right? Two directions. It's one way, but you're either going... <laughs> toward the light or receding from the light. Right? There's, there really is no other. And so the question then is this. If, if the only possibilities are either I'm going toward the light, if the only possibility is I'm going, uh, you know, either going, um, in, in a way of faithfulness or not, <clears throat> then this idea of profession of faith <clears throat> becomes much more defined. Right? When we know that we have a, a way, when we know that there is a rule, when we know that there is, in fact, this... Um, this... Uh, uh, path and we're either going in a faithful direction or an unfaithful direction then a lot of things begin to straighten out right and what we should understand is that that profession of faith that we are to express we're exhorted to make uh, that one, right? We should be ordered together under a single profession. And that profession is defined by those attainments of those who are faithful have gone before us. Right? We know that that much is light. We understand that much from the Bible. To draw back from that in any respect is to draw back from God. All right, number three, we should seek this uniformity in the form of church government. Uh, for the apostle enjoins such in various matters of church policy. We get First Timothy four fourteen, and then five seventeen and nineteen. Well, be 
against him ever received not an accusation, but before two Right. So again, uniformity in church government um, allows there to be uniformity in church policy. It's the purpose of church government and its higher courts particularly to establish forms and usages as well as providing authoritative interpretations against rising errors or heresies. And, and that has an impact not just on one congregation, but all congregations subsumed under that authority. Look at Acts 15, 28 to 31, and then Acts 16, 4 and 5. Acts 15, 28 to 31. The Holy Ghost, and to us to lay upon you no greater burden than these necessary things. They abstain from meats offered to idols, and from blood, and from things strangled, and from work. From which yeah, so again, when the church government is A, faithful in its decretals, and B, followed by the congregations, it has the effect of establishing people in the faith. It has the effect of establishing uh, them in, a, in, in establishing is really to make them stable in the truth and also to, um, to bring about a uniformity of practice, right? There's going to be uh, a uniformity of doctrine and practice. You need a uniformity of government to oversee that uniformity. All right, so that this is why we're really answering, if you don't haven't noticed, um, you know, why they uh, make these matters of concern for the Westminster Assembly. Uh, for we ought to seek uniformity in directory for worship, uh, for the apostle clearly intimates and commends such a uniformity. First Corinthians 14, 27, 33, and 40. So the apostle is doing what? He's seeking to establish order, uh, uniformity in worship. Right? He doesn't want there to be all of these differences from congregation to congregation. He's telling them how certain things ought to be done in order to maintain this rule of decency and order. In fact, uh, earlier he says the worship of God ought to be undertaken in an orderly manner. If you look back at 1 Corinthians 11.34. That ye corrupt 
And this order is noted as a matter of cause for apostolic joy, uh, which is itself an expression of approbation and therefore a note of its desirability in all churches. Look at Colossians 2, 5. Colossians 2, verse 5. For though I am the absence of the flesh, yet on my way to the great joy and the steadfastness of the faith in Christ. So, worship is one of these things where there ought to be a certain amount of uniformity as we go from congregation to congregation. You know, the idea that um, you have one kind of service for old, older people or traditionally minded people and another for the contemporary youth, um, that's problematic uh, just to its very inception. There needs to be a decency and an order which is observable, objectively observable, and in fact might be experienced by any who would go from this to that congregation. That requires a certain amount of uniformity. And um, again, there's apostolic joy. And apostolic joy is telling us um, this is not only desirable, but from an apostolic point of view, if it's desirable, uh, Paul is also, in a sense, telling us it's not just recommended, but um, it's desirable to God, and therefore it's commanded. <coughs> All right, the fifth uh, reason we ought to seek this uniformity. Fifth. Uh, we should seek uniformity in catechizing. And the reason is we're exhorted, all of us, to speak the same thing. 1 Corinthians 1.10 1 Corinthians 1.10 Yeah, and in fact, um, recognizing that there's a difference between uh, the um, the elders and teachers in the church and those who are communicant uh, in the church, the assembly actually gave us a larger and a shorter catechism. And the shorter catechism is uh, the, the um, uh, sacramental catechism that they've given uh, so that you are in a better position not only to examine yourself for right reception, but that you will be in, in a position to speak the same thing with other people. Okay, so sometimes, um, you know, I, I'll refer directly or indirectly to something in the catechism. And if you know the catechism, uh, there's a lot more that will come to your mind when I mention that. And that's by design. They want everyone to be reaching a conjunction and uniformity in catechizing. Right? And that ought to be sound doctrinally. Look at uh, Titus 2.1. Titus 2.1. 
And uh, so we, we know that it's important not only that we catechize, but the catechisms are doctrinally sound, so that what's being spoken back and forth uh, is is sound. You know, a lot of times <clears throat> when you're learning a catechism, like anything that you learn by rote, uh, you may not understand it. Uh, you may not understand it at all. You may only understand it in part. But being aware that this is a question and this is an answer, just being aware allows you to grow in understanding and appreciation so that you can grasp that in a much more profound way as you persevere uh, in the faith, as you grow in knowledge and understanding, as, as you give attention to studying the Bible. Uh, these things are going to begin to come together. They're going to become much more uh, powerfully present to the way you conceive of things. Now, with this idea of catechizing in mind, it's commanded uh, commanded duty that teachers in the church engage in catechizing in order that those taught might be better enabled to give an answer for the hope within. Look at Galatians uh, 6 6. Yeah, let him that is taught in the word communicate. That word there is catechize. Uh, that is repeat back uh, to the one uh, all good things, right? There's there's an idea, that, so the word is katekeo, and it, it is a Greek word which uh, literally means to holler down into a cave and hear the echo back. Right? That's what you're doing. That's what catechizing is. So all teaching in the church actually starts out as a form of catechizing. Right? The, the sermons are themselves catechetical. Okay, They're not catechetical um, necessarily in the way the catechism is. The catechism, though, and in the, in the instruction of the church, the catechism provides a framework, and this is why the, the people who are teaching in the church ought to know the catechism themselves, because the preaching ought to be at some level interacting with that catechism. Think of that catechism as some uh, a doctrinal track that has been set in those who've been catechized. And preaching is sort of teasing out the implications of that and joining it together in a more organic fashion. Right? So catechism is giving you it's almost like learning vocabulary. In fact, some of the catechism actually is learning vocabulary, right? Uh, what is justification? What is sanctification? You're learning a theological vocabulary. And then in the preaching, when you hear mention made of justification or sanctification or any of the other uh, things in the catechism, it allows you to join together the things you've learned, join together 
doctrinally in the catechism, you're now able to associate it in a more organic fashion, fix it in the Bible, and you begin to see practically and organically how all of this fits together. And as that dawns on you, as you grow in that, it actually should be helping you practically uh, so that you can begin to apply these things. So they go from being uh, these vocabulary words that you never used before to being concepts that are explaining to you what you are experiencing and helping you to understand how it is um, how, how your new life in Christ is developing in this world. So catechizing is very important. It's extremely important <clears throat> that you have a sound grasp of that catechism. Even if you don't know what it all means yet. When we teach children vocabulary words, they don't always understand what they mean, or how to use them in a sentence. But over time, uh, they they grow in understanding as they hear other people using it. Which is why, again, I think it's the responsibility of the teachers in the church uh, to, to try to incorporate elements of the catechism, directly or indirectly, into what they're doing from time to time. Right? It should be brought in so that people can see that these are not just abstract concepts, but they are, in fact, uh, things that have bearing on that new life in Christ. <clears throat> All right, let's move on to the fourth question, then. And this is really sort of developing, I think, um, the, the idea that we were just talking about. What is the end of seeking the aforesaid conjunction and uniformity? And the answer is that the end in seeking after such a conjunction and uniformity is twofold. Uh, and as we go through this twofold, I want you to, uh, to consider that in both cases, although one is more oriented toward the church, the other toward God, that in both cases, we're really almost describing flip sides of the same experimental or experiential religion. Right, The life of God in the church and how it, it expresses itself uh, both toward, you know, among the brethren and as reflected back toward God. So, <clears throat> it's twofold. First, that we in our posterity may live in faith and love as brethren. We're going to look at Romans 12.10 and Hebrews 13.1. So as we are holding the same faith and love, 
in near conjunction and uniformity. Um, I should say, as we're holding the same truth and 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 uh, uh, confession and so on, and, and it, it is forming a conjunction of faith and love, right? Because if we hold the faith not in unrighteousness, but in a righteous manner, that is, as people who are redeemed, then that faith is a faith that works by love. And that love is going to be, love is seeking itself, in a sense. Right? Love is attracted to love, and love draws after itself love. And so, there is a nearing of union and communion spiritually with those uh, with whom we hold so much in common. Right? As you grow to hold these things with others who hold them, you are developing a commonality, not of... Um, not of race or, or ethnicity or national, but a spiritual commonality. Right? And, and going back to something we talked about before, the point of what the Scots are doing, they don't want to be Englishmen, they are not asking the Englishmen to be Scottish, right? But what they are asking them to be is fellow Christians. Because as fellow Christians, we have a basis for a mutual alliance, right? All of the things that would potentially bring about war have been removed. Well, that works on a personal level as well. Okay, that, that's, this is really where you get rid of all of these isms that we have in our society right is is when there is this spiritual commonality so i would just say people who reject uniformity in religion you know in confession government worship discipline and so on these are people who aren't really concerned about bringing about that kind of uh, you know, societal peace, uh, a real deep, you know, if people were really concerned <clears throat> with things, you know, like social justice, and here's how you achieve it, right? We, going about it in some other way, demanding that people behave in this way or that way, trying to force people, you know, if, if the Scots had gone to England and tried to force all the English to be Scottish, uh, that wouldn't have worked. Right, and uh, it would have created animosity between the Scots and English. But seeking a near conjunction, which is religious and spiritual, is actually studying uh, that that deeper unifying principle, which makes it possible for 
not only England, Scotland, and Ireland, but any other nation that had entered into the Psalm Lincoln Covenant on this basis, they could dwell together in peace, right? There, there would be faith working by love. They're not going to be uh, going to war anytime soon. So this is important. It's, this is a very important thing. And you have to understand something historically. Historically, uh, the Dutch never get around to signing on to the Solemn League and Covenant. Okay, this comes to them at the end, toward the end of the Thirty Years' War. They're fatigued. They don't want to go any further. And in right around 1650, a new model arises in Europe, which has been imposed on the rest of the world ever since. It's the, the model of a balance of power. So, we see that you know if we were if we're faithful we can have a spiritual unity and communion and a uniformity between the nations right and between people or um, everything is just going to be reduced to a simple calculation about trying to balance power so that one group doesn't ever get the upper hand on another group so you either have to raise someone up or put someone down, but you can't ever let uh, anything get too far away from that. And that model of balance of power has uh, really been the basis for all modern post-Reformation diplomacy. All right. Psalm League and Covenant is presenting a different model. And I would suggest to you that had they followed this model rather than the model they chose, we would have avoided uh, two world wars and countless other uh, conflicts around the world that have gone on, besides all of the other uh, tensions and societal problems that have arisen from one group of people mistreating another group of people. Right? All of the disparities that are associated with colonialism uh, that would have been avoided had they just followed this model instead of their model. And so I, I think what we're talking about here is uh, important. And if you understand, this is why David Steele in his uh, autobiography says that he's he was waiting for the day when the Solemn League and Covenant would be the cornerstone of the millennial glory. What he's saying is he understands this to be the international covenant model. And if we would follow this, we wouldn't need all of you we wouldn't need a un right we wouldn't need all these other things where they're trying these are makeshift and they're all based upon and and, and backed up by the idea of an exert an exertion of force so uh, this is the other model all right the apostles enjoyed holding fast the form of sound words in faith and love look at second timothy 1 13 <coughs> Jesus. And all that we might live together in love as brethren. First Tim, or excuse me, First Peter three eight. <clears throat> and all of this is simply really the just application of the divine law. 
uh, Exodus 12:49. So again, were we actually to follow the law, which we can only do in the power of the Spirit of God, there would be peace in the world, right? There would be peace between individuals. There would be peace uh, between the nations. Okay, that's why the Bible says that at that time, right, when what we the time that we call the millennium, the the nations of the earth they'll beat their swords into plowshares, right? And they're the wolf and the leopard are going to lie down together, and the kid and and all of that. There, there's going to be this. Uh, universal peace that comes about through this manner. This is exactly why, and the Scots know this, and and this is why they're pressing the cl these claims in this covenant. They want the English to sign on, and the English do, uh, for a time, sign on to this. Right, the problem, of course, is that the nation as a whole has to submit. And the problem was England uh, was descending rapidly into civil war at this point. <clears throat> it's not really one world government, right? It's they, every, every nation would have its national... And it's, it, the Protestant vision is exactly an inversion of the Romish vision, isn't it? The Romish vision, there's one church which is over all of the nations and it, it, it's really impressing itself upon their governments. Um, in, in Under Protestantism, we're saying, no, each nation is going to have a church, but they're all going to be presbyterially aligned. Not under one leader somewhere off there over there in Rome, but that each national church will be um, in a coordinate position, so that no one nation will be over another nation. Uh, there, but they're going to be there will be a uniformity and near conjunction in confession of faith, directory for for worship form of government and catechizing. All right, the second part of this conjunction and uniformity, twofold, is that the Lord may dwell, delight to dwell in the midst of us. Look at Zechariah 2, 10, and 11. Yeah, so the profession of the truth being one, because there's only one truth, 2 Corinthians 13.8. Therefore, it has to be uniform amongst the Gentiles as well as the Jews, Ezekiel 37.27. Seven twenty-seven. My tabernacle also shall be with them. They will be their God, and they shall be my people. So again, here uh, we're told that the result of this uniformity is not only 
that there will be peace among the brethren, that there will be love among the brethren, but that God will dwell among those who have embraced that kind of, of uniformity and peace. And so th- this is, uh, there's a, both a horizontal and, and a vertical um, aspect of this relation. And uh, that's uniformity and conjunction of true religion is at the center of this. All right, there's one more <clears throat> thing to consider here in this first article. Um, and that is this, question five. Is it proper to undertake covenanting not only for ourselves, but for our children? Now, uh, this is something that they assert without uh, feeling the need to prove. And, and in large part because, quite frankly, the Baptist movements had not yet taken off, um, at least among the English-speaking people. Yeah, there were Anabaptists on the continent, but they weren't. Uh, too big a problem yet uh, in in England and, and certainly in Scotland. Anyway, the answer is yes. It is proper to undertake covenanting not only for ourselves but for our children. We're we'll going to look at Deuteronomy five two and three. In fact, um, we could say that Scripture affords many examples of this principle being taken for granted. So, for example, if you look at Genesis 17.7 and then compare with uh, Acts 2.38 and 39. Verse So this is this is really called the federal principle uh, that there is a federal headship, and um, although we're talking about families as we go through here, uh, keep in mind that this principle also applies nationally. Uh, it applies in any. Any um, organization that would constitute a moral person, like a church or a nation. And um, this this, uh, principle is continually under assault by um, a lot of American fundamentalists. You know, this is... Uh, we're talking about the the, uh, the Baptistic churches. Uh, they reject that point. That's a problem. But Scripture presumes that parents can speak for children. Um, and so, again, it's a federal principle. But there's another thing involved here, and that is something that uh, we're going to be talking about at some point probably uh, in context of covenanting, and that is the idea of descending obligation of covenants. So I'm only going to touch on it now, but this is an important 
doctrine. The relations of the domestic circle are of divine appointment, to be sure. Look at Psalm 68.6 and 107.41. Okay, so the Lord is not only the God of each individual, but of families. Look at Jeremiah 31.1. And in fact, we know the, the wrath of God is threatened against all families that do not call upon his name. That is, which do not vow to him. To Jeremiah 10.25. So, here we have a, a very good sense of God uh, claiming people in their familial relations and, and also claiming that they have a responsibility in those relations to, to covenant. Okay. Again, nations, ethnic states, provinces, and so on. These are extensions, and I've talked about this uh, some time ago in talking about national churches, but nations are really simply extensions of families. Families, in some respect, be it became nations. That's how they developed. Um, and so when God is dealing with the Jews, he's dealing with the children of Abraham, right? Uh, they're, that's who they are. Um, that's that's the, uh, the the trajectory, right? That covenant made with Abraham is of descending obligation upon all of his children, and it it takes um, it it actually takes in both Israel as a national church and Israel as a nation. Right? So they're, they're responsible to that covenant eventually in an ecclesiastical capacity as a moral person and in a national capacity as a moral person. Okay, There's a descending obligation. It's rooted in the idea of federal headship. Okay, and that's why it is proper to undertake covenanting not only for ourselves but for our children. And that's why when we talk about the National Covenant, the Solemn League and Covenant, uh, if we are taken into that church which uh, is bound by that covenant or those nations bound by that covenant, uh, then we too are bound by those covenants. It was by families that Israel and the land of Moab did take hold of the covenant and present themselves before him. Deuteronomy 29, 18. Deuteronomy 29, verse 18. Lest there should be among you a man or woman or family or tribe whose heart turned away to stay from the Lord our God, to go and serve the gods of these nations. 
there should be among you a root that beareth gall and wormwood? And we know that this entails a careful instruction in these covenants and to cause the children to make conscience thereof. Deuteronomy 6, 6, and 7. And there may be people who are wondering, like, why are we talking about this? Why do we keep talking about, you know, the National Covenant, the Psalm Lincoln Covenant? It was so long ago. No, you don't understand. Right? There are moral components here. Uh, these are covenants which are binding upon the moral person. And you could be a covenant breaker without ever knowing it. We're going to uh, talk about that in just a moment here. But the fact is, the point of bringing this up, the point of rehearsing all of this in your, in your hearing, is so that you become aware of obligations which have been placed upon you before you were ever born. Right? You are subject to these things. Uh, some of them by reason of the family in which into which you were born, some by reason of the nation into which you were born, some by reason of the church into which you were born or unto which you have come to attach yourself. When it comes to the Solemn League and Covenant, everyone here uh, to a greater or lesser extent, is probably bound in all three ways, although they're not quite uh, necessarily clear on how. Right? But if you have any ancestors who are, you know, English, Scottish, Irish, um, just being born in America, uh, will eventually uh, have reason to, to point out, but. Uh, that that brings you under this bond, right? Being a member of the Presbyterian Church, the the daughter church of the Church of Scotland, uh, brings you into that relation as well. So you're you're probably bound in a lot more ways than you may know. Right. And, and again, you can be bound naturally or you can enter into that, perhaps even unknowingly, by joining yourself to bodies which are in that position. We talk about, okay, you, you need to know because it's very easy to find yourself a covenant breaker, a lot more difficult to be a covenant keeper. But the more you understand about the contours of the covenant, uh, the more you can study to keep that covenant. So, without such diligent instruction of our children and good examples given by us to them, God may justly plague us and let them forget and fall from this covenant, and the judgments of God will fall on the posterity, as on Israel, for King Saul's breaking of the oath to the Gibeonites. Look at 2 Samuel 21.1. Again, I haven't gone into or made a defense of um, uh, 
particular defense of, of why the, these things bind people in in um, the United States, for example, in so many different ways. I haven't gone into great detail, but uh, keep in mind, if they do, it would certainly explain a lot of the problems which have arisen in our society, a lot of the crises that we find, and the, um, the reason we find ourselves at this particular crossroads at this particular place in, in history, right? So you can never begin to address the problem if you don't even know that there is this possibility. You know, they, they were having a, um, uh, they were having all kinds of problems in Israel. They didn't know why. And they inquire of the Lord, they find out it's because of this broken oath. You know, someday, at some point, uh, they're going to begin looking for that, right? When God turns the hearts of his people back to himself, people go and inquire. And when they inquire, they're going to find that um, America and, and a lot of these Commonwealth nations, which are descended from Britain, uh, that were all part of Britain in a sense, uh, when when this was taken, uh, that these nations are all res responsible to this covenant. And the rest of the nations of the earth are, in a sense, um, like England and Ireland with respect to Scotland at this time. You know, they ought to, uh, if they're not already being brought into this in some way, they ought voluntarily to assume this in order that they themselves might be reformed and brought along. So either way, we were to look at it in, in the case of, you know, our country or any other countries, uh, this is important for us to know and understand, uh, particularly considering that these people represent a high watermark of reformation from popery. So with that, um, next time we'll take up the second article and we'll begin looking at uh, what what they're pledging and seeking to do through the second article of the Psalm League and Covenant.